Welcome back. I'm so glad you guys are here. Um, week four of our series called Anti-Heroes. Now, this, this whole series, we've been looking at the book of Judges and some characters that are in the book of Judges. Now, most people, we know kind of what a hero is, right? They're, they're good, they're noble, they're true. And an anti-hero is kind of anything but that, right? They're not really noble with the things that they're doing. They're not really true about the things that they're doing. And really, most of the time, we would call them anything but good. But yet, in this entire book of Judges, it's filled, it is filled with guys and girls that would be considered anti-heroes. They're flawed. They're a lot like you and me in that they are not perfect people. But yet, God chooses to use them over and over again in spite of the flaws that we see. And I love that. I love that because I feel like there's hope for me when I look at this book. I'm like, if God can use this person, then maybe, maybe there's hope that God can use me. Now today we have um, one of the more interesting of the anti-heroes, in my opinion. Now it's kind of hard to say after we've had a left-handed assassin, we've had a, a lady who drove a tent peg through a man's head, right? But then I'm going to tell you that today is one of the most interesting and intriguing ones. Today's anti-hero, he claims, he claims to be the least of all people. In fact, really, if you could put like an epithet next to his name, he would be the insecure leader. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and open them up to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. While you're flipping there, let me just catch you up a little bit on the story. So Israel was in captivity, right? And Moses came up, God raised up a leader, and he led them out of Egypt. But Moses is gone. Moses has died. And then Joshua, another great leader, has, has risen up and he took the people from out of captivity where Moses had them and then he took them into the promised land and they battled and won all of the land. But Joshua has died. And the book of Judges tells us that all of the different tribes began to do whatever was right in their own eyes. And because of that, because of that, new heroes, or really anti-heroes, began to arise. You know, last week we, uh, we saw J.L., right? And she took the tent peg and she drove it into the man's head. And afterwards I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, how does her husband sleep next to her at night after that, right? Like, I can only think that I would be doing it with one eye open if I knew that she had taken care of that other guy that way when he went to sleep. But we've had the, these crazy people. And after Deborah and Barak and JL, we found that the land had peace for 40 years. That that next generation continued to follow God and to be obedient to what he said. But then in chapter 6, verse 1, we find this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. Again. 
Here it is. Once again, we've talked about this, I think, almost every week. But this cycle continues to show up. If you're like me, it's really easy to remember. It's an A, B, C, D cycle. The cycle of sin. The people were there and they abandoned God. And then after they abandoned God, God sends them into bondage. Some sort of oppression or slavery. And then after they exist inside of that bondage, they cry out to the Lord. And he sends a deliverer to them. And then everything is okay for a little bit of time. Until the cycle starts all over again. Now this time God sends in the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East. Now, unlike some of the others that have come before him, which were conquerors and they subjugated the Israelite people, that is not how this group came at Israel this time. In fact, this time they were raiders. At harvest time, they would come in and they would take everything that they could carry back out with them to their homes. In fact, look down at verse 5. It says it this way. It says that they were like locusts in number both they and their camels could not even be counted and they laid waste to the land as they came in now i have to be honest i don't have a whole lot of fear of locusts or grasshoppers that is not something that i think of oh i'm scared the locusts are coming right but maybe it's because i hadn't seen something like this yeah, that's an elephant with a swarm of locusts all around it and a tree. Now, that tree, let me take you to this next picture. Here's a before and after of the tree with the locusts. Right? And just, just to give you some nightmares about locusts for a moment. Here's a picture of a man with literally millions of locusts all around him, running as they continue. In fact, I saw videos of locusts that would just like hit people. They would just come, could you imagine you're just walking and millions of locusts are swarming and they just keep hitting you over and over and over again. <laughs> right, I saw some of you shudder with me. Thank you, Katie, I appreciate that because Oh, I just, I think that I don't have a healthy enough fear of that. <laughs> and this is how Judges describes these raiders, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East as they came in like locusts. They would devour everything, anything that they could. And they would take it with them, leaving the Israelite people with nothing. And the Bible tells us that this happened for seven years. Seven years. The raiders came in and took whatever they wanted and left the people with just scraps of whatever it was to be able to try to survive. And before long, the Israelite people cry out in their anguish. And they're like, God, please, something, anything. And so God sends somebody 
Check out what verse 10 says. He said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, that's not really what any of us think what we should have God saying right here, but God sent in a prophet. He didn't send in a judge, a deliverer, when the people cried out. He broke the pattern for just a moment because he said, I want you to understand something. He said, I don't want you to be afraid of the gods that you think are around you. Instead, I want you to follow me. I didn't know when I wrote this part that my parents were going to be in the room when I said this. So um, if you need confirmation of this, please don't talk to them after the service. I'll be happy to answer any and all questions. But growing up, occasionally, once in a while, I would get in trouble, right? And I always knew when I was in trouble because my dad would no longer just use my first name, right? The first name and the middle name meant you were in trouble. But when it got shortened down to just the initials, it was no longer Charles Vernon, but it was CV. There was only one appropriate response. Hide. <laughs> Hide and hope that it's a really, really good hiding spot that you can stay in for a really long time. But here it was, God does something different. He uses the middle name, if you will. He pulls out a prophet. And he sends a prophet to the people. This is a huge deviation from that cycle that we just talked about, right? You abandon God, God sends some sort of oppression, and the people cry out. We've had all of that, A, B, C, right here. But instead of sending a deliverer, God sends a messenger. And he says to them, I don't want you to be afraid of the gods that you think are surrounding you. Follow me instead. Listen, the prophet does two things. The first thing is he points out the problem. And the second thing he does is he reminds the people of God's promise. He points out the problem and he reminds the people of God's promise. You see, way back in Exodus chapter 19, when that guy Moses that we talked about earlier was leading the people, they were out in the wilderness. This is before the moment when they get the Ten Commandments. God has this conversation. He says this to the people. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine. You see, the prophet's reminder and this call to repentance was based on security that is found in God. Do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when people don't get enough of the right kinds of food? Some of you may be going, oh, they starve, right? No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. When they don't get enough of the right kinds of food, they begin to have what's called food 
insecurity. This shows up a lot in foster children, especially those that have been in neglect. And they have stories of kids who would sit down at a table where all the food that they could need and then some is at the table. And the kids will only eat half as much as what they need. And they will stick the rest into their pockets and they will look for any opportunity they can to hide it when somebody's not looking. And then they'll go stash it somewhere that they think is safe and secure, like under their bed or in a closet or somewhere so that they can get to it later because they have this insecurity about where the next meal is going to come from. And here's what happens. When you begin to have that kind of insecurity in your life, it affects everything. It changes how you look at things and how you hide things. According to Webster, insecurity is this. Insecurity is the uncertainty or the anxiety about oneself. It's a lack of confidence. You know, I think if most of us if I were to do a survey in here, we could probably almost all of us agree with this. We've all dealt with insecurity at some point. Whether it's insecurity about the ability that we do or do not have to get a job done. Maybe you face the insecurities of following a leader that is insecure. You know, there's some truths about insecurity that I want to point out real quick. Here's the first one. Insecure people operate out of fear. Insecure people operate out of fear. At the root of insecurity is always chronic fear. It's a fear of failure beyond recovery, right? It's a fear of not living up to somebody else's standards. It's a fear of having all of your incompetencies exposed. Garland Vance said it this way. He said, fear blocks insecure leaders from hearing the voice of God. Fear screams louder in a leader's ear than God's whisper. Here's the second thing I want you to see about insecurity. Insecurity breeds more insecurity. Insecurity breeds more insecurity. Now, I don't want us to elevate insecurity to the level of a sin. Right? I don't know that I think that insecurity is a sin, but it is certainly, it is certainly a rotten fruit of sin. Because we all of us, all of us long for security, right? We want those who lead us to provide security for us. We want security in our jobs. We want security in our homes. But insecurity robs us of security. And it's vicious. It's vicious because it not only robs us, it not only impacts us, but insecurity affects everybody around us. 
You see, insecurity is an infectious disease. It spreads like wildfire. In fact, insecure leaders create insecure followers. Because those followers no longer know if there is safety to do anything. In fact, it creates an environment of hesitation and an inability to commit. You see, when a leader lacks confidence, in other words, they're insecure, those around him, the team that's around that leader, they lack the ability to commit because they're not sure about what it is that they should do. And so insecurity breeds more insecurity. You know, oftentimes when we think about good leaders, right, what we think about is this idea of competency. Are they competent in what they're doing? But have you ever stopped to think about where does competence actually come from? Where does competence for a leader actually come from? I think it's this. I think competence comes from, a, it's a positive result of a healthy engagement and confidence cycle. There is a cycle of competency. You see, as somebody begins to engage in something, they begin to grow in confidence. As they grow in confidence, they begin to engage more with what's going on. And as they do that, it spirals up and their competency continues to grow. But wait a second, here's what happens with insecurity. Insecurity, take either one of those two things for a second. Either they have a lack of confidence, and so because of a lack of confidence, they fail to engage, and because they fail to engage, they lessen their confidence, and because they lessen their confidence, they engage less, and because they engage less, what we see is this downward spiral of insecurity. And so this idea, this idea of competency for leaders is actually based in confidence and engagement. And if you want to up your competency as a leader, then you've got to dive in in one of those two places. And let me tell you the easier of the two. Engage. Become engaged. And this moment of a downward spiral of insecurity is the moment that we drop in and we find Gideon and all of the Israelites. Gideon is going to be the next future judge. But Gideon is so insecure. In fact, when we meet Gideon, Gideon is in hiding. He's hiding. In fact, he's hiding threshing wheat. Now, I'll, I'm not a great farmer. I grew up in Oklahoma, but I'm not a great farmer, I promise. But when you thresh wheat, what you would do is, is you beat it to break free all of the good kernels that are in there. And then what you want to do is you take some of them, they would take some sort of a bowl and they'd toss it so that the chaff would break free and, and blow away. But Gideon, Gideon is down in his hiding hole. He's in the wine press. A hole is dug in the ground in order for a in, designed for a whole different purpose. Now, I love, I love this. Gideon is down in this hole, 
And there's no air whatsoever. And so everything that he's doing, he's there breathing it all back in. And there's this, there's a whole lot of incredible imagery about the fact that he's down in a wine press when God finds him. But in this moment, God calls out to Gideon. And Gideon's insecurities are on full display. Look with me, if you will. Verse 14 says this. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then Gideon goes off and he says a whole bunch of stuff, but God doesn't even acknowledge it or respond to it. So we're going to move right on past what Gideon says. And then the Lord turns back to him and says, Listen, go in the might of of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did not I send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. You know, several years ago, there was a team of botanists that were in the Southern Alps. They were exploring and looking for, for new flora and new fauna that was there. And as they were looking around, they spotted a plant that had never been seen before. And they knew that this was an incredible discovery, but the problem was that it sat in this very dangerous ravine. Jagged rocks on every side, and it was very, very narrow. In fact, most of the guys that were on the team could not fit into the narrow space. And they began to, they began to talk about how could they get to this rare plant and about how it would change all of humanity if they could figure out a little bit about this plant. That's botanist for you, right? They think a plant's going to save all of humanity. But um, they really thought that they needed to get to this plant. But none of the solutions were working. None of them were listening to the others as they were talking about things. And off in the distance, up on the hillside, was a young boy who had been observing the botanists for several days. And one of them turned and said, hey, young man, why don't you go get that instead of just laughing at us over there? And the young man turned and left. The botanists continued to, to jostle for opinions, each of them trying to be heard over the other about what was the best plan of action about how to get this. But at the same time, knowing that they didn't want to send one of their team to be the one to go down there because the person who got down there first would most certainly be the one who got to name the plant. And so their insecurities ran rampant. And they ended in a stalemate with nothing happening. You know, not unlike those scientists who were insecure about everything and trusted nobody and insecurity was everywhere. Gideon was incredibly insecure when God found him. He had all kinds of reasons about why it is that God should not use him at all. He's like, my clan, it's the weakest of all of the clans. 
He's like, as if that's not bad enough, I'm the weakest in the weakest clan. I'm the weakest in my family. My brothers all beat up on me all the time. God, you don't really want me. But then God said to him, I will be with you. I'll be with you. Listen, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. God's presence is the prerequisite to breaking the power of sin and insecurity in our lives. God's presence is the prerequisite to breaking the power of sin and insecurity in our lives. He looks at Gideon and he says, I'll be with you. These incredibly powerful words are the exact same words that he said to Moses. When he said to Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. They're the same words that he said to Joshua. When he said, Joshua, I want you to lead these people into battle in order to take over all of the land. He says, I will be with you. You see, God always confirms the things that are a priority to him with his presence. He confirms to Gideon, he says, look, this is important enough to me that I'm going to be with you. In fact, on down, he says, we're going to face this as if we are one. Now, a lot of translations make it seem like, hey, you're going to go into battle, all of these multitude of people, and you're going to be unified in this battle. And no, what God is saying to him is literally, you and I are going to be unified together as if we are a single unit, one person doing this together. That's how much I'm in your corner and on your side on this. You see, without God's presence, Without God's presence, we're just like Gideon who's sitting in the wine press, waiting for a breath of fresh air. There isn't any. But Gideon, I love Gideon's insecurity when it shows up. He's like, God, I know you just said I'm gonna, you're going to be with me, but will you stay right here for just a minute? And I'm going to go get a goat, and I'm going to go get a couple of cakes that I'm going to make up real quick, and I'm going to bring those back as an offering. So that I'll know that your presence is really in this. And so he leaves. And the angel stays there. And he comes back and he brings it. And the angel takes the offering that's there. And the angel touches it and it, it burns up. What? It's the moment that Gideon's like, alright God, I got the picture now. Don't touch me. Right? But Gideon's insecurities weren't cured in this moment. I love that there's still a process that God goes through, but he doesn't take away his presence as we go through the process. See, the very first thing that God said to Gideon, he said, look, Gideon, there's stuff going on in your private world that before I take you public, you're going to have to take care of. He said, here's your family. You've got idols in your home. I need you to go tear down those idols. And so Gideon, all hopped up on God's power and presence, 
waits until the middle of the night when nobody is looking. And he goes and tears it down and he doesn't even leave a note about who did it. But you know what? God was still with him. And then, then, after he's taken care of this private battle, God says, it's time to take this public now. And we're going to go, and we're going to take on an incredible army. And he's like, okay, look at first. I need to know that your presence is here. And I really want you to do this so that everybody also know that your presence is here. And so he takes a fleece, right? He takes this goat fur and he throws it down on the ground. And he said, God, if you're really in this, do something miraculous right here. And God says, I am. I'm here. He says, okay, good. I was good, God. I'm glad that you did that. But just to make sure, we're going to do this thing in reverse now. And God's like, Fine. I'll do it in reverse. Because God always confirms his priorities with his presence. Let me make just a, a, a modern day parable for just a moment. A fictional story, but it could be real. It could be somebody that any of us know. I read this from a group that's called the Gospel Coalition. And they shared a story about a young man, a parable about a young man who had just gotten a brand new job with a Fortune 100 company. Go him. He was fresh out of college, didn't know much in the world or the workplace, but he's landed a great job. And a few weeks into the job, the CEO calls him on the phone. And says, hey, I have something I need you to do for me. Can you meet me at 8 a.m. in our offices tomorrow morning? Where do you think at 8 a.m. the young man was at the next morning? He was there at 7.55 sharp. He wasn't even sure if the CEO knew his name before the phone call that he had gotten. But the, the guy who was in charge of all of it had just called him for an important task, an important duty. And so he shows up, looking his best. He walks in to the CEO, the president, the boss man, his office. And the boss looks at him and says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to deliver a message across town for me. I need it to be an in-person message. And he began to share the message with the young man. The man felt incredibly honored that the CEO had chosen him to go and to take this message. And so he begins to memorize everything that is being said to him. He soaks it all in. And when the boss concludes all he says, okay, do you have it? The young man says, yes. He says, great, I need you to go. And the young man walks out the door and goes down the stairs and begins to make his way across town. And as he begins to go across town, he begins to think about, why did the boss call me? I'm nobody. Why am I the one that he called to, to come do this? 
I've only been there. Surely there are better people. And as he began to think through all of these different things and scenarios began to play out in his head, he began to slow down his pace as he headed across town. And by the time he reached about halfway, he stopped and sat down. I was like, I, I can't do this. And after some time of sitting on the side of the road, he decided, I, here's what I have to do. I have to call the boss and let him know that he's chosen wrongly. I'm not the right person for this job. So he picks up the phone and he calls the president, the CEO of the company. And as he begins to try to explain to the president why it is that he can't, the president, or wise, wise businessman said, hang on just a second. Will you answer a couple of questions for me? He said, number one, who hired you? Number two, who called you to do this job? Who best knows your qualifications? And of course, the young man answered, you to all of those. And the boss said to the young man, he said, I want you to repeat after me. I am not in charge. And the young man repeated it back. I am not in charge. And he said, I've been called to do a job. I've been called to do a job. I trust the person who called me. I trust the person who called me. I can do this because he's with me. I can do this because he's with me. And the boss said to the young man, he said, as you continue to go, I want you to say that to yourself over and over again. Because you can do this. And I'm with you. You have my full support and weight as you're doing this. Why I sent you. The young man continued on his way, repeating over and over and over again. And as he got to his destination, he walked in in all confidence and stood before the CEO of this other company across town and delivered the message that his boss had given to him. That's us. That's us and God. But it requires, it requires God's presence in our life for us to defeat the enemy of sin and for us to deliver the message that God has called us to. We can't do it without God's presence. Before I close, I want to note just a little bit more in the story. So the Midianites and the Malachites and all of those of the east come and they encamp again. And this time God says, I'm going to send you in. Gideon, the insecure leader, says, okay, I'll gather an army. And he has an army of 10,000 to go take on. And God says, no, that's not what I want you to do. He says, 
Here's what I want you to do. I want you to thin it down. And Gideon thins the army down to 300 men. And then God tells him, I don't want you to take any weapons in. What I want you to do is I want you to take in um, banging pots and I want you to take in fire. And you're just going to make a whole lot of racket as you come into the camp. What? And he does. And the Midianites and the Malachites killed each other. And the rest of them ran off. And God delivered them. But here's the problem for Gideon. Gideon had God's presence and he experienced it. And on the backside of all of this, Gideon takes some gold and he makes an ephod. It's like a, a, a priestly garb. And he takes it and he puts it in his house. And he begins to do worship with that and of that in a fake and a false way of trying to garner God's presence. Some of it I understand. Because once you experience God's presence, you hunger for it. And you're desperate for it. You're desperate to be near God's presence. You know those botanists that we talked about just a little bit ago? They continue to argue for several minutes, perhaps even close to an hour's worth of time. And while they were arguing, the young man came walking up closer to the group. But this time he was followed by a gray-haired man. And the young boy came up to the botanist who had said, why don't you do that instead of laughing at us? And he said, I'll do it. He said, but I just have one condition. And the botanists all looked at astonishment at this young man. He said, my condition is, is that he holds the rope. And they said, well, why do you want him to hold the rope? He said, because that's my dad. Here's how you get over insecurity. You have to be desperate enough for God's presence and then let him hold the rope. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for Gideon's story. God, this insecure leader But I'm also so, so thankful that you took him through a, a process and God, that you were with him. God, I love that the promise that you've made to us is that you're with us too. You sent Jesus. Another name for Jesus that you've given us is Emmanuel, which means God with us.
God, I don't know about anybody else here, but I am desperate for your presence in my life so that I, I don't have to be beaten down by the enemies and the enemy of sin that's around me. But God, that I can live free because you have my rope. And we just continue to give you all of the glory and all of the honor. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.